think the main thing I would want to say to that is, wow, thank you for the, on behalf of these other men, thank you for the overly kind words. And reality is, just to be honest, that has the temptation to be a little awkward, doesn't it? When somebody's saying, hey, thank you. And the reality is, that's when I take the counsel of Corey Ten Boom who said, you know, what do you do when somebody comes and they say thank you? Or what do you do when someone comes along and they say, hey, good job? You receive it. You receive it. You say thank you. Maybe you've worked hard. So you receive the thanks, but at the end of the day, you go back to the Lord and you say, God, you and I both know who deserves this thanks ultimately. And then you take that thanks that was offered to you and you give it back to God where ultimately is due. So, that's the intention. Thank you so much. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for whatever you have pre-planned. I would want to say from the outset that does not nullify my desire to be appreciated through Ellen's dumplings wherever she may be. She She's left, I think. But... <laughs> I told her Wednesday night, Ellen, I want to appreciate it through your dumplings. So that's an expectation. <laughs> John Piper asks a soul-piercing question that I want to relate to you. He says, he asks, the critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there. Now, we would be tempted to run to that and say, well, if there's no Christ, then there's no heaven. I think the intention is to try to draw out a response from the heart and not necessarily try to draw out a response from our theological thinking. So the question is, have I placed such worth on the person of Jesus Christ that the thoughts of a trouble-free eternity without Him would be dissatisfying? How does a heaven with no problems and no pains compare to a heaven with no Christ? And I think the only way to really answer that honestly with integrity, because we're probing, we're not condemning, we're not judging, we're simply probing. And I think the only way to answer that honestly and with Integrity is to determine what it is that we've placed the greatest worth on right here, right now, in this life, at this moment. Paul says in Philippians 1.20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether through life or through death. And we gravitate to that desire and we say, yes, Lord. 
We want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified in and through our lives. We want you to be honored and glorified in and through our deaths. But the biblical suggestion is not just that the worth of Christ is seen in a person's life from a distance. The biblical suggestion is that the worth of Christ is seen in the details of a person's life. 1 Corinthians 10.31, for example, Paul says, So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of Christ. So there is worth that I'm placing on the person of Christ based on what I stick in my mouth and the beverage that I drink. Or Luke 14, 26 and 33, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So I'm placing worth upon the person of Christ as I measure his value against the value of other relationships and other things that, to be quite honest, are very, very dear to me. So the Spirit of God, the Word of God is probing our hearts and preparing us. And I pray this morning that Paul will give us some practical examples so that we will be taken to a place in our hearts where we would say quickly, without hesitation, without reservation, God forbid that there could be a heaven without a Christ. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, please. Philippians chapter 3, we will read verses 12 through 16. 12 through 16, Paul says this. Not that I have already obtained this. We'll go back and recap what this is. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God In Christ Jesus, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord. with the acknowledgement on our lips that God, we we need you. We come to you, Father, with the acknowledgement 
based on what's going on in our hearts right now, Lord. That God, we, we're imperfect. We do not love you as we should. We are not running as hard as we can. Lord, speak to our hearts today. Speak to us in our humanity, God. Encourage us. Help us. Strengthen us. Because God, our desire would be, as Paul has expressed, to know you. So God, I pray that this morning we would evaluate in our hearts your place of worth. And we pray that you would help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the present pursuit of Christ. Our present pursuit of Christ. What it is that God has called us to do right here, right now, even at this present moment. I'm going to have three points under that banner, but I'll I'll reveal those to you as we go. So let's talk about the present pursuit of Christ. Let's reread verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Let's remember what it is that the Apostle Paul is pressing and straining forward to do. He's pressing and he's straining to obtain a deeper knowledge of the person of Christ. But let's not be confused about that knowledge. Let's not be confused and be tempted to think that to obtain a deeper sense of knowledge of Christ means to accumulate more information that we can try to apply to our lives. When the Apostle Paul talks about obtaining the knowledge or knowing Christ, he's talking about an intimate love relationship that God began that we are called to continue to pursue. And when we develop a deeper, intimate knowledge of Christ, beloved, that is when we are more satisfied with and in Him. When we develop a deeper, intimate love relationship with the person of Christ, that's when we're more taken aback by His mercies that are new to us every single day when we develop a deeper, intimate love relationship with the person of Christ, we're no longer just grappling with theology. We're no longer just grappling with orthodoxy. We're no longer just grappling with doctrine. We're grappling with our hearts at that point. That's why Paul is pressing. That's why Paul is straining. There's a big difference in me having intimate knowledge intellectual knowledge of my wife and knowing her intimately. Knowing her intimately requires a little bit more effort and a little bit more pressing and a little bit more straining. Now, I want to challenge you on the front end. Do not be taken aback or deceived by the word effort. If we're talking about effort in the sense of trying to obtain the righteousness of Christ, then effort is the greatest enemy of grace that there is. 
But if we're talking about effort in the sense of getting to know intimately in a love relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, then effort is the greatest ally of grace that is in, is, is in existence for us. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Our pursuits, and I would go on to say that probably, possibly, the pursuits of mankind, they're pursuits that have a purpose attached to them. Now let me try to explain to you what I mean. I believe that everyone wants to find someone, everybody wants to find something that they can attach some worth to, because when they do that, it suggests that life now has meaning. Life now has meaning for that purpose. And that seems to be the response of all of mankind to this thing called human existence. And that's why we look at some people's lives and they seem reckless. We look at some people's lives and they seem thoughtless. Or they seem misguided. Well, I believe that that person's life can represent simply a frantic search for meaning. A frantic search to try to develop and lay hold of worth. But the reality is, it can be so frantic sometimes that it's seen in misguided and ultimately perverted ways. That's why we need to hear the voices of those like the author of Ecclesiastes who says, look, I've tried everything under the sun. Unlimited physical relationships. The abundance and accumulation of wealth. Filling the body with wine. And every single one of those pursuits have left me empty. We, are, we not only need to hear the words, but we need to hear the sorrow in the voice that represents wasted pursuits, wasted years, and unfruitful years. But, we also need to take that idea and we need to apply that idea to our Christianity as well. Because I don't know about you, but I want to know what defines wasted years. I want to know what defines worthwhile pursuits. For example, when we're told to just simply read our Bibles. It's important to know that when we're reading our Bibles, studying our Bibles, knowing our Bibles, that we're identifying the single-minded purpose of our pursuit of the Word of God. And I say single-minded because Paul says this one thing I do. So even when we do something like read our Bibles, there's a single-minded purpose in that pursuit. And that single-minded purpose is not an accumulation of information. It is a method. And it's a method for every man. It's a method for every woman. And it's a method for every child to enter into a deeper love relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. The method consists of drawing each one of us deeper into the family of God, deeper into the intimacy that can exist through a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul's suggestion is, seemingly, if intimacy with the person of Jesus Christ is an element that's lacking in our Christianity, then listen, beloved, we're pursuing the wrong things. We're pursuing wasteful things. I believe it's his way of saying we're running the wrong race. Understand that the Apostle Paul is talking to us in athletic terms. As he's talking about pressing on and straining forward, he's giving us the imagery of a runner 
getting ready at the starting line to run a race. And what's the motive for running this race? The motive for running this race is not the accumulation of information. The motive for running this race is entering into a deep, intimate love relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. The closest thing, the closest parallel that we have in knowing Him, the way that Paul talks about knowing Him, is an overflow of the physical intimacy. The emotional intimacy. The spiritual intimacy that exists between the physical intimate relationship that takes place between a husband and a wife. That is the intimacy that Paul is claiming. That is the intimacy that Paul is calling us to pursue. Usually Paul's references is to our Lord. When he writes his epistles, usually it's a reference to our Lord, our God. We are introduced to the first time, if maybe not the only time, that Paul says, no, he's my Lord. Verse 8. Back up if you would. Verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what intimacy does. It personalizes relationships. He's not just a Savior. He's my Savior. He's not just a God who is in essence love. He is my God who extends love directly and personally to me. But I think in order for us to run this race accurately, we have to look at the origin of intimacy with Christ. And I want to suggest this morning that it begins with Christ's pursuit of us and not our pursuit of Christ. Look at verse 12 again. Notice notice why Paul is pressing to make intimate knowledge of Christ his own. Notice why. Because Christ first made Paul his own. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We talk about the greatness of knowing the person of Jesus Christ as we should, but I think it's just as important to note that the beginning of this love affair does not have its origin in us pursuing Christ. It begins with us being pursued by Christ and Christ having intimate knowledge of us. We love because He first loved us. We run the race with energy and passion because He first pursued us with energy and passion. His action toward us, His action of love toward us, generates a reaction from us. The Old and New Testament compare our relationship with the person of God to a marriage relationship. But listen, beloved, do not be deceived. This was not a matter of love at first sight on both parties. We did not see Christ. We did not meet Christ. We did not exchange glances with Christ and take it upon ourselves to run toward Him in slow motion with the intention of a long embrace. This love affair with God was determined way before our existence. God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before you were formed, I knew you. That Hebrew word, knew, yada, it has the same intimate intention as the word 
that Paul uses in the Greek for knowing Christ. So let's pay attention to the process in which we experience a love relationship with Christ. God says, before you were formed, I extended myself through intimate love toward you. I gave myself to you before you were formed. And that's the mark that God has left in our hearts and it creates a definite response on our part which is, God, I want more. Let us be seriously unapologetic in saying we are after what benefits us. We want gain. That's why we're here. That's why we're passionately pursuing Christ. There's gain to be had. We want that gain. Let's look at three quick ways that we can gain Christ. Prayerfully that we can know Him better. Love Him deeper. The first is, we gain Christ by understanding our current deficiency. We gain Christ by understanding our current deficiency. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own I am not already perfect I am imperfect I have not obtained this you see running a right race means that we're in humble agreement with the person of God that we are not yet where we need to be. And it's a very simple acknowledgement, beloved. It's a very simple acknowledgement. It's the acknowledgement that, you know what, I don't pray the way I ought to pray, and I need the Spirit of God to fill that void and teach me how to pray. It's the simple acknowledgement that the the Spirit is so willing, but the flesh is always so weak. Therefore, I need the Spirit of God to enable me to live this thing called the Christian life. It's the simple acknowledgement that we have a high priest who is continually making intercession necessarily because we continually need intercession to be made on our behalf because we are so imperfect. Do you experience feelings of dissatisfaction in your Christian walk? Do you feel dissatisfaction in your life? Maybe life in general? Are there times when you feel dissatisfaction in your marriage? Maybe the way you respond to your spouse in marriage? Do you feel dissatisfaction the way that you may respond to certain circumstances? See, I believe that when we experience that type of dissatisfaction, and we all do, But I believe that when we experience that type of dissatisfaction, it's not because of a failure to conform to a certain standard. When we experience that type of dissatisfaction, it's because of a failure to make much of the person of Jesus Christ in the midst of that circumstance. When we experience dissatisfaction, it's the result of us running the wrong race. And it all begins with an agreement with God that we are imperfect people. As a matter of fact, I believe that Paul uses that for a motivation in running the right race. One author says, we must go hard after Christ because we are so deficient. A failing student should pursue a special tutor. 
nearsighted people should pursue an optometrist. People with strep throat should take antibiotics. Alcoholics should pursue a support group. Young apprentices should follow their master at his work. Not to go hard after Christ means that either you don't trust his power and willingness to change your imperfections or that you want to cling to your imperfections. In either case, Christ is scorned and we are lost. We pursue based upon our need. Knowing Christ, listen, beloved, it's our greatest need. Knowing Him intimately, not knowing Him intellectually. Knowing Him here before we know Him here. Or knowing Him here with the intention of knowing Him here. We gain Christ also when we're liberated from our past sins. We gain Christ when we are completely liberated from our past sins. We have a decent amount of people here. Now what that means is we have people here who are currently struggling with sins. We have people in this room that are currently struggling with past sins. We have people in this room who are currently struggling with present sins. Let's see what Paul says about that idea. Let's go back to verse 13. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. What's the one thing? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that a Christian's memory and the Christian's discipline of remembering, guys, it's a very important practice in our faith. We gather together at times like this to worship the Lord. We're gathering together as a people who have a history. Okay? Now, some of our history runs a little bit deeper, a little bit longer than others, perhaps. But we're gathering as a people who have a history with their God. History is intended, in this context especially, with our God. History is intended to be remembered. It's intended to be reflected on. We worshipped in song this morning as we reflected on our history with our God in relation to His faithfulness. The psalmist Asaph said in Psalm 77, beginning in verse 7, he begins by stating, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. And then he goes on to engage in this dialogue with himself as if to suggest that God may be hard to be found. Listen to what he says. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? And then he answers his own questions by reflecting on the faithfulness of God. He answers his own questions by remembering. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders. So when Paul talks about this single-mindedness, this one thing that he's given to, 
in the sense of forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, it seems as if Paul is saying, listen, there are some things that are not worth remembering. There are some things that have no value at all when they're pulled up from the past. As a matter of fact, it seems as if Paul is saying, forgetting. Forgetting certain things is the formula for successfully knowing the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest this morning that what we are called to forget, number one, we're called to forget our past failures. We're called to forget our past sins. On May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister was the first man to run a mile under four minutes. Two months later, a gentleman by the name of John Landy beat his record by 1.4 seconds. Two months later, they established a historic race to be had between the two of them. As these two men begin their race, Landley is holding the lead. He's holding the lead the whole time. And as they make their way around the turn and they see the finish line, there's this one question that Landley cannot get out of his mind. You know what it is? Where's Bannister? Running, running hard, running toward the finish line, but consumed with the thought of where is my competitor? Where is Bannister? So what do you think he does? He looks back. He looks back. He misses his stride. Bannister passes him. Lanley loses the race. He was later asked by a reporter, what happened? This is what he said. I know. I know. I know. I know that if I had not looked back, I would have won that race. Paul says there's one thing I do. I forget what lies behind me and I strain forward to what lies ahead. The word straining, it means an intense stretching. Stretching to the maximum limit of my capacity. And listen, beloved, it consumes all of our energy to know the Savior in this fashion. We cannot move forward in knowing the person of Christ while at the same time looking back to our failures and think for one moment that we're going to run this race with any type of endurance. When we are dominated by reminders of the sins of our past, we are paralyzed in pursuing Christ in the present. If you need to look back and take a quick glance at your sins for the purpose of establishing safeguards and learning from them, I would think that's a grand practice. If we need to look back at our sins for the purpose of being reminded of the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of our sins, I would say that is a more grand practice. But when Paul says, I'm forgetting the things that lie behind, what he means is, I am no longer caring for them. To, to be reminded simply of sin is to be reminded of the shame and the guilt that accompanies that sin. And what that means is we're trying to run a long distance race wearing concrete shoes. Or we're trying to run a 100 yard dash in waist high water when everybody else is on the ground and they're running freely. David said, God, please do not mention the sins of my youth. Which means, God, please do not bring them to mind. God, please do not keep an account of the sins of my youth. 
Please don't do that. He asks the Lord in this, in this humble request. And then we're exposed to the life of David. A man that we see his sins greatly and in depth exposed to us in 2 Samuel as he's committed adultery and he's committed murder. And then we see his life repeated in the book of Chronicles. But you know what we don't see when his life is repeated? We don't see that sin that once defined him. Why? Because when God forgives us of our sin, God forgets our sin. Now listen, let's establish clarity. He doesn't forget in the sense that it's no longer in his mind. Or he's not capable of drawing it to his mind. He forgets our sins in the sense that he no longer holds an account of our sins. He no longer reminds us of our sins. He no longer brings our sins before us. You see, the same way that Christ counseled the woman caught in adultery is the same way that He's counseling us this morning. The woman caught in the very act of adultery, mind you. And so Christ says to her, go. What's that mean? It means go forward. Move forward. Move forward in your life. Run the race. How in the world can she do that in the midst of the reality of the depth of her sins? Go, move forward, sin no more. Which absolutely doesn't mean you're going to be capable of not sinning again. But it does mean you are now because of the love that's left a print on your heart, the fingerprints of God that have massaged and are left all over your heart, you now no longer have to be defined by that type of sin. So go, move forward, run the race. But let me assure you of this, beloved. She will never run her race in the present. She will never run her race in the future unless she knows that she's been forgiven of the sins of her past. So Christ necessarily says, neither do I condemn you. Now, what's that mean? It means be free to run this race for the person of Christ. Those weights that you have strapped around your ankles, shake them off and run with freedom. And you know what that causes us to do? It causes us to want to serve and run with energy all the more. That's the energy that Paul says we need in order to run this race. Listen to the words of J.I. Packer. And listen, J.I. Packer's not God. His quote is not the Bible. But listen to the reality, the biblical reality of how God views us. J.I. Packer says, I am graven on the palms of His hands. I am never out of His mind. All of my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative of knowing me. I know Him because He first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when His eye is off me or His attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when His care falters. This is monumental knowledge. This is energized knowledge. This is active knowledge. There is tremendous relief 
in knowing that His love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. One of the greatest things that kind of haunts me that I want to share with you. And you know what? I don't even know if I have a biblical basis for this, but I'm going to tell you how this made me feel, if that's even relevant. Feelings are so deceptive. I was with a group of men. We were having a Bible study. And so what we did is we went around the room and each one of us shared our testimony. I'm sharing my testimony with this group of men. And of course, I'm reflecting on my past. And I'm reflecting on my relationship with my stepdad. And some things are coming to surface in relation to how that affected me in my adult life with my marriage and in relationship to my children and that type of thing. And afterward, a man came up to me and he said, Listen, man, you've got issues. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that. Man, you've got some issues. You know what you need to do? You need to go back. You need to confront your stepdad. And you need to tell him everything that he's done to you. You need, to, you need to be released from that burden. Man, you're going to feel better about yourself. And, man, it's going to be, that's what you need to do. You need to go and just kind of, he wasn't saying directly, but you need to go and just, this is what you've done to me, man. This is your sin. Look, okay, <laughs> maybe that'll work. I am messed up. Maybe that'll work. So I go, I meet him, hadn't seen him in years, and I kind of did that. I kind of said, listen, I want to talk to you, and I want to tell you how what you did, what you exposed me to. I want to tell you how that affected my life. And you know what? Maybe immediately and initially there was a little sense of relief, but it didn't take long to realize I took all of this junk and all of this baggage and all this garbage that once defined me and kind of pressed me down in my walk with the Lord. And do you know what I did? I just transferred every single bit of it to Him by saying, this is what your sin did to me. And I would say this, if Christ says, I remember your sin no more, who are we to drudge it up? Who are we? Lastly, and briefly, in order to gain Christ, we need to see our need for grace at the moment. In order to gain Christ, we need to see our need for grace at the moment. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. If we are not called to remember our past failures, then I want to assure you we're not called to remember our past successes. Now, if we're reflecting back with the intention of drawing from the faithfulness of God and our successes, so be it. But to look back and just remember the good things that we've done, We have to forget that because that might suggest that we're done running our race or that our race may be near to being over. On his 70th birthday, William Carey wrote the following to one of his sons. This is what he said. I am this day 70 years old. A monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much very much for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. 
I have not promoted his cause nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all of this, I am spared till now and am still retained in his work and I trust I am received into the divine favor through him. What Carrie did not mention is that he had went to China some 40 years prior. India. What he did not mention is that he translated the Bible into 40 different languages and 40 different dialects. What he did not mention is that he started dozens of schools for boys. What he did not mention is that he started the first college in Asia. It kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul who at the end of his life says, I am the chiefest of sinners. Not reflecting on the great things that had been done, but reflecting on the reality that I need grace for this moment right here, right now. I don't know of a runner who goes to the starting line of a race and says, listen, I've got a lot of good races under my belt. I've won a lot of races in the past. As if to hold on to those truths to enable him to run this race accurately with passion and with zeal. We need grace for the moment. So when Paul reflects back to all of his accomplishments, some of them worthy accomplishments, and when he says, I consider them to have no value at all to the point that they are like rubbish. They are like dung. He doesn't just mean that they have no current value. He means they are not accomplishments that he allows to continue on lingering in his mind. Why? I need grace for the moment. I need grace right here, right now, to run the race I'm in at this very moment. Yesterday's sins will derail you. Yesterday's accomplishments will cause us, if we're not careful, to be apathetic in the race that we're running right here, right now. There's only one reason to look back on sins, failures, or successes. One only. And that's to draw from the faithfulness of God in the past to enable us to run the race right now in the present. That's the only reason we look back. Amen? ask if you would bow your heads with me, please. Paul is creating imagery in this passage. We're runners. We're in a race. What that means is we don't look to our left, we don't look to our right. If we're going to run with seriousness and passion and zeal. We have our eyes fixed on the prize. We have our eyes fixed not just on the reality that as we run, we're developing new intimate knowledge of Christ, but we're running with the intention that when we reach that goal, at Christ's appearing, we will obtain a more full knowledge of the person of Christ, although we will continue to be learners even then. Listen, do not look to your left. Do not look to your right. Do not look back. Is there anything in your life, beloved, that's serving as weights around your feet, around your ankles, that may be preventing you from running this race? When a, when a runner stepped into the stadium to run a race, he had his eyes fixed in one location, the goal, the prize. And that's where he stayed fixed, And when he ran, he ran with that in view. So this morning I want to encourage you 
to never look back at your sins, your past failures, your past mistakes. Never look back at the things that you've done for the Lord. Look back to pull from His faithfulness during those times. But don't look back at those times and let their weight hang on their own. Father, we we are taken aback by the way and the manner in which You love us. God, who are we that You would give such thought to us that men like David could come to You and say, please don't hold this against me. And You and you concur. And it's not that You've even concurred. It's that You've determined it before the foundations of the world because of the cross. Why would You not hold our sins against us? Because the cross of, the cross of Christ is worthy enough to cover all of our sins, our past sins, present sins, our future sins. The cross is worthy enough so that we can never be plucked out of Your hand, God. There's no man. There's no demonic force. There is nothing that can remove us from being loved and pursued by You. We are Your people. We're called by Your name. And yes, You hold us in the very palm of Your hand. Thank You for God, for that, God. Thank You for when we were yet sinners, You died for us, God. Thank You for pursuing us still and leaving Your mark of love and grace on our hearts and giving us a reason to run hard after You. Thank You for that, God. We are forever grateful and we look forward to the day when we will forever sing your praises and rejoice with you because of your great love toward us. In Jesus' name.